For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Today we are continuing our practice commitment period study of the Malakirti Sutra on one of my favorite chapters, chapter six, the inconceivable liberation. But first I must acknowledge, I would like to acknowledge that this is a, an auspicious day. Aside from Ramadan and Passover and Easter Sunday, we are celebrating Buddha's birthday. So the traditional date of celebrating that in East Asia is April 8th. And so we will um, have as our service uh, after the Dharma talk and uh, the uh, inconceivable lifespan of Buddha to go with the inconceivable liberation. And during that uh, chant, People in the room will bathe the baby Buddha who's sitting in front of our altar. So this is a traditional way of celebrating Buddha's birth. So this chapter on inconceivable liberation is what's my favorite in the whole sutra. Uh, one of them, certainly. And... I don't imagine I'm going to completely cover it today. So at least some of the chapters in the sutra we will, and some of the themes we will talk about during the practice commitment period more than once. Um, so this begins in a very humorous vein, um, as is uh, part of the sutra, many, many parts of the sutra. So the disciples and bodhisattvas and so forth have been, uh, in the previous chapter, the Constellation of the Invalid, which uh, will, uh, which Douglas will be speaking about tomorrow, e tomorrow evening, many uh, people, disciples and deities and mystical beings, as well as bodhisattvas, uh, enter the room of Malakirti to check to, at the Buddha's request to uh, check with him about his uh, illness. And uh, partly we'll see in the sutra, it's, so Vimalakirti is, uh, we don't think an historical figure, but when this sutra was introduced to China, it, be it became very popular because it's about uh, a totally awakened layperson, not the usual monastics. And uh, the emperor of China sent an emissary to India to find the room of the Malakirti to see how large it was. And so this Chinese person went to India to the city of Vaishali and asked after where was the uh, house of Himalakirti, and of course, uh, Indian people sort of 
keyboard or whatever, because they knew that it wasn't a historical thing. But they sent him to a space, and he measured the, the room there where all of the drama that we're going to talk about today and in ensuing chapters occurred. And they found that it was 10 feet by 10 feet, hojo in, in Sino-Japanese. And so that is the name for the, the abbot's quarters in all of Zen, in all of Shaman Zen. And it's also the name given to uh, the abbots of these temp of Zen temples, hojo-san in Japanese. So when I was in Japan, uh, the abbots of places I was practicing were addressed to Sojin Sun because of the Malakirti's room. So um, what happens is that uh, it starts off thereupon the venerable Shariputra, one of the 10 great disciples of the Buddha, who figures prominently as a kind of uh, scapegoat or whatever in, in the sutra, uh, had the thought there is not even a single chair in this house. Who are these disciples and bodhisattvas? Where are they going to sit? And of course, uh, Malakirti read the thoughts of the Venerable Shariputra and said, Reverend Shariputra, did you come here for the sake of the Dharma or did you come here for the sake of a chair? <laughs> Shariputra replied, of course, they came for the sake of the Dharma, not for the sake of a chair. Uh, the Malakirti continued, Reverend Shariputra, he who is invested in the Dharma is not interested in his own body, much less in a chair. Reverend Shariputra, he who is interested in the Dharma has no interest in matter, sensation, intellect, motivation, or consciousness, the five skandhas. He has no interest in these aggregates or in the elements of the sense medium. Interested in the Dharma, he has no interest in the realm of desire, the realm of form or matter, or the realm of, or the formless realm. These are described as three aspects of uh, reality. Interested in the Dharma, he is not interested in attachment to the Buddha, attachment to the Dharma or attachment to the Sangha. Reverend Shariputra, Malakirti continues, he who is interested in the Dharma is not interested in recognizing suffering, abandoning its origination, realizing its cessation, or practicing the path, which are the four noble truths, of course. Why? Malakirti continues, the Dharma is ultimately without formulation and without verbalization. So um, he goes on um, <laughs> vilifying Shariputra for his, his concern for his comfort and for having a good chair. Uh, he says, Reverend Shariputra, the Dharma is calm and peaceful. Those who are engaged in production and destruction are not interested in the Dharma, are not interested in solitude, but are interested in production and destruction. He goes on like this. Furthermore, the Dharma is without taint and free of defilement. He who is attached to anything, even to liberation, is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in the taint of desire. The Dharma is not an object, key, key statement. He who pursues objects is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in objects. And he goes on like this. Uh, 
He who seeks to associate with the Dharma is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in association. So uh, I'm, I'm not reading all of this, but uh, he ends up saying, so Reverend Shariputra, if you are interested in the Dharma, you should take no interest in anything. That's quite a statement. Take no interest in anything. This German's translation. I would say this means to not attach to anything, to not be invested in anything, to not seek the Dharma in some thing or object. And he makes this clear as it goes on. Then Vimalakirti, this great awakened layperson, says to the crown prince of wisdom, Manjushri, who is the person who uh, accepted the Buddha's challenge to go and speak with Vimalakirti. Everybody else was afraid of Vimalakirti. Um, so Vimalakirti says to Manjushri, Manjushri, you have already been in innumerable hundreds of thousands of Buddha fields throughout the universe. Uh, throughout the universes of the ten directions, in which Buddha field did you see the best lion thrones with the finest qualities? <laughs> so we talked about in the beginning of the sutra that when a Buddha awakens, there is manifested around them a Buddha field. And there are many Buddha fields in all 10 directions and beyond, innumerable countless Buddha fields. Friday night, reading the Flower Ornament Sutra, we came to a chapter where there are amazing numbers and numbers and numbers. Uh, David Ray, what was the largest number, as you recall? Well, it was maybe 14 trillion or something like, no, 14 quadrillion, quintillion maybe. Quintillion. We're, we're about halfway through. Not, not, but then it goes on to, what, non-aliens or, I don't know. That's what Matt Strite said. Yeah, okay, anyway. So there are all these Buddha fields all around, and Manjushri, the crown prince of wisdom, has been to all of them, and he, he, he knows what's happening. He goes everywhere to spread wisdom. Uh, Manjushri replies, Oh, noble sir, the Malakirti, if one crosses the Buddha fields in the east, which are more numerous than in all the grains of the sand of 32 Ganges rivers, one will discover a universe called Merudvaja, which is uh, roughly uh, Mount Sumeru, Meru, the land. There dwells a Tathagata, a Buddha called Merupradi Pataja. Sumeru Lamp King. His body measures 8,400,000 leagues in height, and the height of his throne is 6,800,000 leagues. The bodhisattvas there are 4,200,000 leagues tall, and their own thrones are 3,400,000 leagues high. Noble Sir, the finest and most superb thrones exist in that universe, Merudvaja, which is the Buddha field of the Tathagata, the Buddha, Merupradiparaja. Uh, and now he's talking about leagues. Um, the Buddha's body is 84,000, 8,400,000 leagues. And uh, as I recall, a league is defined by the distance 
an army can march in one in, in one day. So that's one lead. So anyway, uh, these thrones are really big. At that moment, Ramalakirti, having focused himself in concentration, in samadhi, performed a miraculous feat such that the Lord to talk to Meruprat Raja in his universe, in his Buddha field, sent to this universe 3,200,000 thrones. These thrones were so tall, spacious, and beautiful that the bodhisattvas, the great disciples, the brahmas, all the, all the deities and, and, and uh, uh, magical figures who were there listening in, in the room to Vimalakirti and Manjushri had never before seen the like. The thrones descended from the sky and came to rest in this room of the Malakirtis. The 3,200,000 thrones arranged themselves without crowding, and the house seemed to enlarge itself accordingly. So we're entering into the realm of the inconceivable here. The great city of Aishali did not become obscured, neither did the land of Jambudvipa. Jambudvipa is the main traditional name in the Buddhist cosmology for the southern continent. So you might think of that as India, but that's actually our world, our Buddhist world. Uh, the world of, it did not interfere with the world of four continents. Everything appeared just as it was before. And the Malakirti said to the young prince, Manjushri, Manjushri, let the Bodhisattvas be seated on these thrones, having transformed their bodies in a suitable size, to a suitable size. <laughs> so all of this is happening in this 10-foot square <laughs> room of the Malakirtis, where, he's, where he's, he's lying on his sickbed. But the beginner Bodhisattvas were not able to transform themselves to sit upon the thrones. Then the Malakirti taught these beginner Bodhisattvas a teaching that enabled them to attain the five super-knowledges, and having attained them, they transformed their bodies to a height of 4,200,000 leagues and sat upon the thrones. But still, the great disciples were not able to seat themselves. Um, so, um, skipping ahead a little bit, uh, the Malakirti instructed these disciples who were filled with consternation because they could not sit on these thrones, Bow down to the Tathagata Maru Pradipara Raja, and you will be able to take your seat. The great disciples bow down to this Buddha and receive the upon the thrones. And Shariputra went on, you know, noble sir, it is astonishing that these hundreds, that these thousands of thrones are so big and high can enter into such a small house as yours. The Malakirti replied, Reverend Shariputra, for the Tathagata and the Bodhisattvas, there is a liberation called inconceivable. So this is, this is the teaching that I want to talk about, this inconceivable liberation. The Bodhisattva who lives in it, the inconceivable liberation can put the king of mountains, Mount Sumeru, which is so high, so great, so noble, so vast, into a mustard seed. They can perform this speak without enlarging the mustard seed and without shrinking Mount Sumeru. 
I don't know if Mount Shimura was supposed to be a name for Mount Everest. There, there are many high mountains in the, in the Himalayas. Uh, the deities of the assembly, the four kings and, and he, of the heavens, do not even know where they are. Only those beings who are destined to be disciplined by miracles see and understand the putting of the king of mountain Sumeru into this mustard seed. That, Reverend Shariputra, is an entrance to the domain of the inconsiderable liberation of the Bodhisattvas. So, um, this variability of space and of dimension, of size, is one aspect of this inconceivable liberation that the Malakirti teaches. There are elements of this in other um, sutras, certainly when we get to the final book or chapter and the culmination of that in the Flower Ornament Sutra, which we do a monthly reading of the first Friday evening of the month. Everyone is welcome um, on, our, on our Zoom link. We will see another example of this, but um, our idea of size is just our idea. This actually also applies to time, and we'll, we will get to that. But um, the Malakirti is giving this teaching about going beyond our usual conventional idea of what space is. And this brings up my favorite Buddhist movie. Um, and I don't want to give away any spoilers. So uh, ha has anyone not seen the movie Men in Black? Also, oh, Paula hasn't seen it. <laughs> well, he, as a Star Trek fan, you should really see Men in Black. <laughs> oh. oh, Men in Black. It, it's uh, with, uh, what's his name? Um, Will Smith. Who's, was disgraced at one of the Oscar events, but it's still a good he actor. Himself. He disgraced himself, yes. <laughs> Thank you. But anyway, Men in Black is, uh, especially the, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but especially, <laughs> you have to watch until the end, because especially at the end, there's a, a, a teaching about this inconceivable liberation and the uh, inconceivability of uh, spatial dimensions. So I really recommend that movie, Men in Black. Um, just because of the inconceivable liberation. And there are a lot of things in that movie besides the ending that, are, that resonate with this kind of Buddhist teaching. Anyway, Nirmalakirti uh, goes on to say a bodhisattva who's, who is uh, informed by this inconceivable liberation can pick up with his right hand. I don't know if some of them are left-handed. Anybody here left-handed? Hi, Jerry. Well, I, maybe, maybe they could do the same with their left hand, but in the sutra it talks about the right hand. Such a bodhisattva can pick up with their right hand this billion-world galactic universe. The whole universe. This universe, of course, there are many, but 
they could pick it, pick it up as if it were a potter's wheel and spinning around, throw it beyond universes as numerous as the sands of the Ganges, without the living beings there and knowing their motion or its origin. And he can then catch it and put it back in place. Boomerangs around the universe, or this universe boomerang, anyway. I don't know how to talk about this because it's it's just wild. And this is this is uh, unsettling our usual conce- conceptions of how we conceive reality. So this bodhisattva can catch it and put it back in its place without the living beings suspecting their coming and going, and yet the whole operation is visible. Furthermore, Shariputra, there are beings who become disciplined after an immense period of evolution, and there are also those who are disciplined after a short period of evolution. The bodhisattva who lives in the inconceivable liberation for the sake of disciplining these living beings who are disciplined through immeasurable periods of evolution can make the passing of a week seem like the passing of an eon. Has any of you had a week that seemed like it was like an eon? Sometimes this happens, maybe especially sitting in session for a week. Anyway, and they can make the passing of an eon seem like the passing of a week for those who are disciplined through short periods. So, um, some can, through an eventual period of evolution, actually perceive a week to be passing of an eon, and, and some actually perceive an eon to be the <coughs> passing of a week. Excuse me. Um, anyway, likewise, such a bodhisattva, the Malkirti continues, can place all living beings in the palm of his right hand, or maybe left hand in Jerry's case, and can show them with the supernatural speed of thought all the Buddha fields without ever leaving his own Buddha field. So this is, again, how this applies to time as well as space. So uh, there's... There's more. A bodhisattva who lives in inconceivable liberation can magically transform any kind of living being into a universal monarch or a world's world uh, systems king or a disciple or a shravaka, a solitary sage, a bodhisattva, even into a Buddha. This bodhisattva can transform miraculously all the cries and noises, superior, mediocre, and inferior, of all living beings of the ten directions into the voice of the Buddha. So this inconceivable liberation, the point of it is that it goes far beyond our usual conceptualizations of reality and of the world. How we usually think of the world is um, just how we usually think of the world. It's not 
reality, according to this description, according to the Bodhisattva, the Malakirti, this great awakened way Bodhisattva. Suzuki Roshi said, the world is its own magic. There was it somebody in Shakespeare says there's much more. What, you did in Yes. Can you quote that, Keith? What, that there's more in the sun? Yes. So, okay. So there have been a, there has been awareness in our in our world system in our planet of this um, dimension of inconceivability that the Malakirti celebrates. Yeah, also every everything everywhere all at once. Yes, another another movie recommendation. Everything everywhere all at once. Yes. It's wild. It's a it's a wild ride. But uh, if you can if you can stand it, you might check it out. Anyway. Um, so all of this is happening, and then poor Mahakashapa, the ancestor Mahakashapa, who is in our lineage, at some point, at some point in this practice period, we will chat the names of Buddha, and he is the first ancestor of Chan, it said, after Shakyamuni Buddha, but he was just a disciple. He was just one of the, he was one of the ten great disciples, historically, of Shakyamuni Buddha. When Mahakashapa hears this teaching of the inconceivable liberation of the Bodhisattvas, he was amazed. And uh, he says, he, well, he says a few things to Shariput, to, to the Malakirti, then he says, who is there among the wise who hearing about this inconceivable liberation does not conceive the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment as for us whose faculties are deteriorating talking about the arhats the great disciples the personally awakened ones um, our faculties are deteriorated like a burned and rotten seed what else can we do if we do not become receptive to the great vehicle we, all the disciples and solitary sages, the Srivakas, hearing this teaching of the Dharma, should utter a cry of regret that, that would shake this billion-world galactic universe. As for the Bodhisattvas, when they hear this inconceivable liberation, they should be joyful. Like a young crown prince when he takes the throne, when he takes the, the crown that is anointed. And so... Um, how is it to hear about this? Just hearing about it, we can't quite conceive of it. It's just this inconceivable liberation is beyond our faculties, beyond the faculties of disciples. But those of us on the Bodhisattva path, doing Bodhisattva practice, might hear this liberation that is in the scope of the inconceivable and might feel joy. How wonderful. Things aren't what we think they are. There is 
more possibility than we can possibly imagine. And when Mahakashapa said this, it says, 32,000 gods conceived the spirit of unexcelled perfect awakening. Then Himalakirti said to the ancestor Mahakashapa, Reverend Mahakashapa, the Maras, the demons who played the devil in the innumerable universes of the ten directions are all bodhisattvas dwelling in the inconceivable liberation. They are playing the devil in order to develop living beings through their skill in liberative technique. All the miserable beggars, he continues, who come to the bodhisattvas of the innumerable universes of the ten directions to ask for a hand, a foot, an ear, a nose, some blood, muscles, and so forth. Um, these are all bodhisattvas demonstrating the inconceivable liberation. And then this chapter ends with one of my favorite teachings in the Mahayana, which I found encouraging. Um, Yamalakirti says to Mahakashapa, it is not possible without special allowance that an ordinary person can thus attack and deprive a bodhisattva. Just as a donkey could not muster an attack on a wild elephant, even so, Reverend Mahakashapa, one who is not himself a bodhisattva cannot harass a bodhisattva. So as bodhisattva practitioners, how does, what does this, what does this mean? Only another bodhisattva can harass or hassle a bodhisattva. So the people that you think of as most difficult, you feel harassed by. According to this, are also bodhisattvas. Only one who is himself a bodhisattva can harass another bodhisattva, and only a bodhisattva can tolerate the harassment of another bodhisattva. This is the introduction to the power of the knowledge of liberative technique of the bodhisattvas who live in the inconceivable liberation. So, um, this is, a, this is actually a pretty wild thing to say. I mean, I know some of you may have felt hassled or harassed by particular beings in your life. But according to this, they are just testing you to see if you can have what I talked about last week, Anatara Samyaksam, oh no, Anapadaka Dharma Shanti. Patience and tolerance of the ungraspability, the unknowability of all so-called things. And uh, 
I think in the previous chapter it talks about how there are no such thing as things. You think this is a dead object? Not according to the sutra. There are no such things as objects or things. So, I'm tempted myself to apply this to the beings who are harassing and hassling all of us in our society now. So these Tennessee fascist politicians who have expelled uh, members of their assembly who were elected just for questioning the gun laws that allow massacres of young people. Could it be that these horrible fascist politicians are just testing us and harassing us to see if we can respond as bodhisattvas and challenge our society's seems like weekly mass shootings. And next Sunday, Dale Wright will be here talking about the goddess of freedom, who's also prominent in the Malakirti Sutra. And can, is it possible that the fascist politicians who are threatening the safety and the lives of women all over our country, depriving them of appropriate medical care because they value the lives of fetuses more than the lives of children after they're born. Is it possible they are just bodhisattvas in disguise, <laughs> hassling us to, to test us to see if we can respond and activate a response to this cruelty? So I just, you know, it occurs to me to wonder about that, hearing about only a bodhisattva can hassle another bodhisattva. And here we are all bodhisattva practitioners. Of, you know, maybe just beginning bodhisattva practitioners. But that's good enough. So this inconceivability, this seeing spatial dimensionality and temporal dimensionality as how we usually see them as being just a, a small aspect of reality. Mount Sumeru, the highest mountain in Indian cosmology can fit in a mustard seed. The Malakirti can toss the whole universe around and capture it in his hand and put it down. And the beings in that in that universe are not aware of it unless there are beings who can be who can benefit from seeing all of this and develop bodhicitta 
and be inspired towards Bodhisattva practice. This is what this chapter is saying. It's, it's really wild. If you really take it seriously, this is beyond, beyond, beyond. So part of our challenge is this Anupadaka Dharmic Shanti, which I'll keep talking about. This patience or tolerance of the inconceivability, the ungraspability of so-called things, of so-called spatial dimensions and temporal dimensions. This is this is a wild teaching. This is a teaching that goes beyond anything. Well, whoever made Men in Black imagine some of us. Dr. Who is another example. Yes, there are examples. Yes. Uh, Dr. Who travels through time, through space, to to distant future, to distant past. Yes, Dr. Who is great. And there are other examples of this in our culture of seeing that our usual way of conceiving of time and space and people and so-called things is just a fragment of reality. So I, I feel like I will at some point during this practice I'm going to go, go back to this chapter and talk about it more because it's, well, it's just mind-blowing and I think it's really helpful actually, but it's challenging. You might say, oh, this is just some Indian story, cosmological fiction. Anyway, I encourage you to, to um, consider this inconceivable teaching. So maybe I'll stop and, uh, and uh, invite comments, responses, reflections from uh, people on, on Zoom who are joining us. Captain Tim. And um, the people in this room. So comments, questions, questions responses, please feel free. Yes, Eve. Well, I have a question about the passage you read um, about the molecule talking about the Dharma and not attached to anything else. Can you hear her on Zoom? I can't see if people are saying yes. Just um, they're nodding. Yes, yeah. okay, good. Yes, yeah, so speak up, please. Yeah, so as I said at the passage about where the Malakirti is talking about the Dharma and non-attachments and anything else. And I mean, in the spirit of the non-duality of non-duality, is he exaggerating so much that you come to question what he's saying? I mean, I'm asking as somebody that, frankly, like, I can meditate in the middle of a mess, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Well, it might be that your mess is uh, a manifestation of Bodhisattva's hash on you and uh, allowing you to see that you can meditate in the mess. So our practice is not about... So this is an important point. Uh, our practice is not about making everything 
you know, kind of clear and clean and nice and neat. I mean, that's a, that's good to do that. Well, yeah, that's the point. But but it's that's not the point of inconceivable liberation. Inconceivable liberation includes that our world is a mess. <laughs> not just your room. <laughs> and how do we be upright and present and uh, see the wonder of the universe? Right in the middle of that, but not passively. How do we respond to that? How do we help? Of course, that's part of the Bodhisattva practice. That's the point of the Bodhisattva practice. And the Malakirti, again, is living in Vaishali, a big city like Chicago, or at least for that, you know, in that time. And um, he is engaging in all of the various uh, complexities of that world. So our practice is not to hide away from the world and not to hide away from suffering and chaos and messes. Well, if you want to indulge me for another moment. Please. I mean, the other thing that what you were talking about reminded me of, so there's this, um, so this is from the Hindu epic, the, the Mahabharata. Yes. So the, the Javanese um, an action of that, there's one scene where Arjuna's meditating in a forest, and he's very still. He doesn't move. And but the power of his meditation is so strong that it um, it raises the heat in the forest, sort of a metaphor for climate change, and all the beings get uncomfortable, including the demons that are in the forest. And then this one little demon comes and he starts, you know, because he's upset, because he's uncomfortable and the meditations made him uncomfortable. And and the demon, you know, Arjuna like doesn't move at all. He's very still. And the demon's like, you know, flailing around and throwing mud at Arjuna. And, you know, and Arjuna just, you know, sits there and ignores it. And but finally, you know, he gets a little bit annoyed. And then he like flips his little finger like that. And then that makes the demon go, <laughs> you know, fall down and fall apart. Yeah. And, and I mean, he, you know, when you're talking, I think that whole story is about, I, well, you can see it as being about skillful means. But also, that demon, from this perspective, is the Bodhisattva. That's the yeah, Arjuna. Right. So, um, yeah. But but the thing is, the part when you were talking about, you know, how we react to the people that are hassling us, um, I think, you know, the idea that, uh, like, a considered small reaction um, can produce a big effect. Yes. But, but it's the power and the, you know, all the commitment and thought and skillful means that go into the, that little flick of the wrist. Yes, and thank you Dave, for that. And that um, is an example of inconceivability because um, we, can, we don't think that anything we can do will make a difference in the mess of the world. But a little flick of the finger? Right, just like if a butterfly's wings flutter and it causes a hurricane, eventually. 
Yeah, so um, part of our practice, and this is emphasized in Soto Zen, is that we don't know the outcome of our activity. But our activity in response to the harassment of demon bodhisattvas can make a big difference. And we don't necessarily see the outcome. So thank you very much, Eve. Anybody else, comments, perspectives, questions about all this jam? Um, I did not like the change in what you call our theme song when we said that um, uh, okay, something is endless and something is endless and we vow to end them. And you change that to cut through them. Could you bring me... Yes, delusions are inexhaustible. We've got to cut through them. Yes. Um, and, and that's literally what the Sino-Japanese says. It doesn't say to end them. So oh, it doesn't say to end them. It says we've got to cut, them, cut through them. Mm-hmm. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, this is a, a change that uh, my teacher, Tension of Anderson, made at Green Gulch a good while ago. And I finally decided, yes, we need to do this too. Literally, it doesn't say we got to end delusions. This is an important point. This is an important dharmic point. We don't vow to end all delusions because delusions and awakening are not separate. So part of what this Malakirti Sutra is going to teach us is non-duality. That we live in the world of a mess and delusions and we have our own delusions. We all have our delusions that um, interfere with our being all that we can be. And the point isn't to get rid of them. The point is to see through them, to cut through them, to not be caught by our delusions, to not act on our delusions, to awaken to the reality that delusion and awakening are interactive. Delusions help us to realize awakening. Awakening helps us to see through delusions. But it's not about it's not about killing all the bad people, <laughs> so-called. That's just our delusion. It's not about ending delusion. It's about not being caught by delusion. This is a really important point in practice. So I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, we vow to, to see through, to cut through, to move through all of our own delusions and delusions in the world. And awakening is, a, is how we do that. Thank you. Um, and I had another problem. Okay. Uh, we were commenting on the people who are trying to deprive women of health care. And um, I've just read a book by Anne Elizabeth Moore, um, where she where she points out that seventy percent I don't know where she gets this of all the people who suffer from um, um, autoimmune diseases are women, mm-hmm. and autoimmune diseases are previous, uh, you know, previous. Um, illnesses, so that if you get an insurance policy that doesn't have to treat previous illnesses, this cuts out a huge population of women who suffer, and and 
men too who suffer from autoimmune diseases. Right. And um, I just thought that was an an important um, point of realizing that um, certain kinds of insurance are even uh, are, are very much anti-feminist because of the and in some places uh, a, a previous illness or a previous condition can be called pregnancy and um, so I yes I just I, I really wanted to um, uh, talk about the fact that um, anti-feminism in healthcare is it's not anti-feminism only it's anti-women whether women believe in feminism or not, it is a tremendous persecution of women happening in our society now. Yeah. It's horrible. And there's totally, the, the, the health, our healthcare system is a total fraud, or a lot of it is fraud. You know, there are good doctors and there are, there are advances in medical systems, but uh, people in this country don't, compared to other so-called developed industrial countries, our healthcare system is horrible. And many people are become homeless and are bankrupt because they have to have an operation. Anyway, yes. So yes to everything you're saying. And it, and it's uh, and the politicians who are imposing this stuff, maybe to help us awaken, are uh, so Black people are, of course, under attack. They, you know, in Tennessee, they expelled the two black, uh, no, not the white ones, yeah, uh, the two black legislators who spoke up about reasonable gun control, banning assault weapons after people in their city were, you know, three nine-year-olds and three adults were slaughtered. Uh, so, uh, and, but the but the woman who objected was because she's white. She they allowed her to stay, it's, and she wasn't as loud. Well, at any rate. Um, yeah, so all of that's happening. We should not pretend it's not happening. And thank you for, for you know, emphasizing it, Jan. It's, uh, women are being treated horribly. Uh, there are black, young black men, but other black people murdered by police every week. It's, it's and, and there are good policemen too, but it's just, Anyway, uh, our society is being harassed, and from the point of view of this inconceivable liberation, those doing the harassment are bodhisattvas testing us. At any rate, uh, whether you want to believe that or not, uh, this teaching of inconceivable liberation is to go beyond our usual way of thinking. So other comments, questions, perspectives about inconceivable liberation? Chris's hand is up online. Hi, Chris. Thank you. Um, I wanted to um, first uh, kind of respond to the um, uh, healthcare system being anti-woman, and I would say it's anti-human yeah. in this country. It's inhumane. Uh, those are my biases um, as somebody in healthcare. You're, I might you're a add. Doctor, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, I mean, compared to other countries, it's a travesty. Um, th- having said that, um, 
the comment about autoimmune disease and pre-existing conditions, those are not synonymous. Um, Autoimmune diseases are um, their own separate entity, but that's does not, if you develop an autoimmune disease, it, it's not a pre-existing condition. So, um, but the question I had back to the, your Dharma talk is the, uh, inconceivable liberation, uh, that Vimalakirti is teaching. And because he's always in cahoots with the Buddha, is this a call to let go of our sense of our physical world with the whole notion of these gigantic thrones? and huge beings that it's just let it go because it's, this is not, not graspable. Ah, thank you. Thank you for that question. I would say it's not a call to let go of our physical world. It's a call to take care of our physical world because our physical world is in this dimension of inconceivability. So, uh, this hearing of so th- thank you for asking that hearing about these vast dimensions of space and time and so forth doesn't mean we should ignore the reality of this here space and world and our particular lives it's actually the opposite it means that in our particular space and world in our particular life in our particular concerns about our life and our society are contained exactly in in the delusions, we could say, in the the illusions of uh, this limited space uh, here in Chicago, although I see people uh, online from Michigan and New Mexico and I'm not sure where else, uh, here, in this life, here is this is the place where we take care and where we practice. But then we, we this here place, even if it's minute compared to this other <laughs> world system and Dharma universe, where they have these huge thrones, uh, our, our life and our world includes all of that. So we actually, I really appreciate the question, Chris, because it's easy to think that way. Oh, the world is so vast. The dimensions of time are so vast and also so minute uh, that um, we don't have to pay attention to our ordinary world. And it's exactly the opposite. It's right in our ordinary world that all of this is happening. It's not separate. So this teaching of non-duality is really complex and intricate and challenging to us. So that's my response. I don't know, you know, uh, this is the danger of these kind of sutras that present this vast array and panorama of this wild reality. That wild reality is not separate from the ordinary events of our lives. So thank you. Can I follow up to this comment? Yes, Kathy, please. I thought the same thing, and I, I think of it more as maybe the sutra is bringing attention to a permanence. That's true, too. Can everybody online hear, hear her? I, uh, as I was 
listening to his teachings today, I was thinking about some of the teachings I had from my Dallas teacher years ago, who would sometimes describe um, the, venerable, the venerable, awesome previous leaders who were now somewhere in my mind in the sky somewhere, like bigger than life, still in the spirit world, still somewhere. Uh, and, um, and also when I go to acupuncture, uh, my acupuncturist husband is a Dallas teacher. There is one side of the room that are six feet tall uh, statues of Buddha in the language. And, um, and so there's this sense of it's bigger than life. And uh, it does do something about bringing our attention to that life is impermanent, I think. That, that there is a larger, there's layers here that maybe we can't fathom, but yes. maybe it's a usefulness to fathom it for that reason. Well, I think it's, a use, there's, it's useful to be aware of the different dimensionalities, large and small, short time, tiny times and long times, uh, that they are connected. That uh, and you mentioned the spirit world. I think that's a a good way of thinking about it. So, ah, uh, oh, Martin Luther King occurred to me. You know, he's still present, calling for justice for working people and black people, and uh, you know, we still invoke him. So, uh, his spirit is still alive. And many, 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 many other beings, Shakyamuni Buddha himself. Um, uh, so uh, the spirit of seeing through how we get caught by the world and people who have helped us to see through our usual perspectives on the world, yes. So it is um, impermanent, but also... Uh, it turns that impermanence to seeing this vast array of time. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, yeah. Um, so thank you. Other comments, questions, responses? Somebody back there. Is that Dylan? Jerry. Oh, Jerry. Oh, Jerry, hey. In the beginning of what you read, when Shari Putra says, you know, there aren't enough chairs for people here. <laughs> and though a Kirky makes problem, like, this is to say, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the people that are comfortable. Don't worry about, you should only focus on the down, which says to me, we shouldn't think about our real physical world. I don't think that's what it's about. Um, it's not, so, yeah, right. He make, makes fun of um, Shariputra for his concern about where am I going to sit here? Um, of course, we take care of the particulars, but our idea of the particulars is limited. So it doesn't mean, you know, that we don't try and have seats for everybody. <laughs> um, but... Um, He's pointing to something that goes beyond our usual concerns. 
that uh, care about the Dharma. The Dharma is Buddha's teaching. The Dharma is truth. The Dharma is reality. And here we're getting this view of the inconceivability of reality. The reality is not just what we think it is. Reality goes far beyond it. So, um, I don't think it means don't don't take care of uh, making the world more comfortable for those who are suffering, but see beyond our usual ideas of comfort and suffering in the world. That's how I take it anyway. But I appreciate your question. In fact, it's really important that we question all of this. That's that's the practice. David Rage, is there somebody there? Uh, no, I, I had a I had a follow-up on that because I'm switching from one camera to the other. Um just um I've just been finding as I read this uh this text that I'm more and more interested in the figure of Shariputra and you know Reverend Shariputra, worthy of reverence, this this revered Arhat. And so in a, in a way, he seems like a stooge, but in another way, as Jerry just said, he's the one who notices, oh, all these people are coming. We need to provide for them. We need to set stuff up. And the Malakirti kind of twists it because, you know, Shariputra didn't say, where am I going to sit? He said, how are we going to seat these people? And then and then the Malakirti right, uses, uses his, you know, cosmic Amazon Prime and gets these immense chairs <laughs> delivered instantaneously. But, but, um, but I don't know. I, I kind of think that you know maybe Shariputra is more in cahoots with with this whole enterprise than, than I had thought um, at first. You know that, that he too is a bodhisattva in disguise as an arhat. Very good. That's what Dogen says. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, this part. Of, I, I think I said this um, in the first talk about the sutra that the arhats. Uh, the uh, those worthy of praise, those who have uh, found personal liberation, are kind of uh, put down in the sutra somewhat. I'm seeing though more and more that it, actually in the sutra also there's a way in which they are acknowledged. In other sutras, like the Lotus Sutra, it's very explicit that that uh, shravakas, those who just study the teaching, and prachyaka buddhas, solitary buddhas, and uh, arhats, who are uh, kind of, in in this sutra, seem to be um, put down for the sake of the the bodhisattva practice. But then in the Lotus Sutra, exactly as you said, they are acknowledged as Bodhisattvas, in, in, you know, kind of hidden because they are helping those who are inspired by them. So, yes, um, and there's even a passage in Dogen's extensive record where he's, he takes an example of Subhuti, another one of these disciples who's put down by, by Vimalakirti, and, and Dogen says very strongly, Vimalakirti doesn't see that Subhuti actually really understands better than he does. So, um, yes, uh, with all of uh, 
these Mahayana texts question what's going on. That's part of the practice. Look and see what's going on beyond our usual conceptual reading of them. Oh, hi. Or that everyone has a role to play. Yes. And that we all, we often think that it's like a teacher and a student going back and forth, but it's not only those two individuals, it's everyone in the environment that's creating the learning environment. Yes. So everyone has a role to play in that learning environment. So this is a teaching about Sangha, that we're all in it together. It's not that I have all the answers up here. That's not, that's not the point at all. I, I can talk, I can babble about these things because I've been studying it for a long time, but um, it's, all, it's up to each one of you to make it real. So yes, and together we help. So there are people in the Sangha who are doing all kinds of wonderful things, and each of them is important. Teaching martial arts, uh, being psychological counselors, being teachers in grade schools and, and colleges, and, you know, it, it being, I mean, there's just many people in the chaplains and social workers, and, you know, uh, and uh, anyway, uh, all of us together are doing one, uh, one piece of the inconceivable liberation. So the inconceivable liberation is about Sangha, practically speaking. So thank you for that, Paul. Dylan had something to say. Hey, Dylan. I had a, it's more of a question, um, but it, it might be semantic, but I find it interesting. Um, is the sutra proposing that there are just like infinite perspectives on what's happening in reality, or that there are, or that there 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 are limited perspectives that get a piece of a of a genuine larger reality that is beyond comprehension. Like is 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 the proposition that there is an uncomprehensible reality that like our perspectives are within, or is the proposition that there are just innumerable perspectives that may be grander or smaller in scope, you know, and that there is there's as many of them that as can be imagined more than that. Yes. <laughs> so I knew you were going to be insane. You were going to no, but but yes, thank you for that because yeah. So you're you're asking what is reality? Yeah. Um, is is there one ultimate reality, or are there lots and lots and lots and lots of little realities? Well, but you're saying then that perception is synonymous with reality. I'm saying that there are that we each have our own perspective. Okay. Um, so, uh, and that's important and that's wonderful. And from the point of view of the sutra, I guess it's saying that Buddha or the Dharmakaya or all the Buddhas in all the, you know, there, there are so many quadrillions or whatever of Buddha fields, uh, and each one has a Buddha, but Buddha sees it all. So that's that's kind of one of the perspectives in the sutra. Um, so um, so one of the perspectives that there is is that there is an all-pervasive perspective. 
Okay. <laughs> yes. But following what you said about Buddha field, so is there a sauna field? Do saunas make fields? Um, Do, does, I mean, in other words, the collective perception of the sauna and action based on that, does that make its own reality? Yeah. And here we are in our Lincoln Square Zendo and our online Zendo uh, in our sauna fields. Or our sauna field. Ancient dragon something. Yes. Well, I mean, I just want to say yes that to the that it's not just a matter of perception, a reality that's separate from yourself. But if you have power as a sauna field, you're changing reality. Mm-hmm. Well, right. Each bodhisattva practitioner is changing reality by our work to help relieve suffering, by our help work to help inspire everyone to practice awakening, to awaken to practice, to awaken to caring for all beings. Um, so yeah, we are we make a difference, each one of us and all of us together. And we don't know the product of that difference. And there are Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and Buddha fields um, in the flower ornament sutra the tip of every staff and the tip of every blade of grass, there are innumerable Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. The reality is made up of awakening beings everywhere. That's not something we ordinarily see. And when we look at, appropriately look at the troubles of our lives in the world, it's hard to see that. That's reality. Um, one more comment or question. Somebody who hasn't spoken yet. Hey, I see Nathan. How are you doing, man? <laughs> um, any reflections? Was no oh, okay. Nathan was maintaining double silence. Any last comments? Okay, Jan, go ahead. Um, I personally don't believe in thoughts and prayers, and I think that when people think they're changing reality with thoughts and prayers, I don't believe that and I have problems Uh, when I was in Israel the people who were actively um, defending it was a long long time ago and the people who were actively defending Israel had a lot of resentment against the section of Israelis society that would not participate except through prayer um, and, and so that's my first comment. But I wonder if... Can I respond to that and then you can do it in a second? Yeah, I'm sorry I speak so much. I just have one more comment. Okay. Okay, go ahead. No, no, go finish oh. yours and then I'll respond. Well, I wanted to respond to what Kathy said about layers. Because and I, this is really, really personal. You start out as a child 
I went to school and found out, to my enormous surprise, that our bodies are made up of cells, which I, and then to my further surprise, every cell contains chromosomes with DNA, which are made up of molecules and atoms. And then I became interested in the structure of the atom and actually was teaching the, the structure of matter as seen by human beings. There's the periodic table, but then you go beyond that to the periodic table of isotopes and it gets more and more complicated. Then I realized that in the middle of a hydrogen bomb, you get a, a substance called plasma that has nothing to do, that not nothing, but it's not atoms and it's not uh, subatomic particles. It is some kind of a mess that we don't understand. And then you learn that uh, scientists say a huge percentage of the matter in the universe we can't see, but we know it's there because of its effect. And you go on beyond this and think, what in the hell is the middle of a black hole? And and then people say, well, what's on the other side of the universe? Mm. And you're thinking, layers. Uh, you can't, I cannot conceive of what what this is all about. Right. And so... Uh, I'm going to try and respond briefly. So, uh, hopefully, our world will not be visited by a hydrogen bomb, even though military powers in various countries are building bigger and better ones. Huh. Um, but yeah, what you said about the structure of you know, this—this is, this is very interesting. The structure of an atom. There's a what, nucleus and electrons and stuff, other things whirling around it. And you can arrange them in the periodic table. Yeah, but also the structure of a solar system. There's a sun in the middle, and then there's planets and asteroids and other stuff whirling around that. And then the structure of a galaxy, they say. There's a center, and, and we're on one small right. wing of... All the things rolling around the center of the galaxy, and when the, when Buddha talks about, and actually in science, they're not. What are they talking? About? Many universes. I, don't, I forget the term they're using, but there are many universes. Um, so this structure of a center and things around it replicates itself over many dimensions, which is kind of part of what this chapter is talking about, I think. Um, so that's just a partial response to your second thing. I'm going to go back to thoughts and prayers. So actually it's been proven by, or it's been demonstrated through experimentation that you know, we have a well-being list that we chant, we try to chant once a month, it's very long, and uh, uh, many beings on it. Um, but they've demonstrated that people who are being prayed for, uh, it helps them, even if they don't know that anyone's praying for them. This has been, been demonstrated in scientific experiments. However, when um, politicians respond to 
uh, mass shootings, like the mass shooting in Nashville and the, the killing of school children by saying, oh, our thoughts and prayers are with them. Uh, in that sense, yeah, that's uh, not helpful because there are obviously things that can be done, like banning assault rifles and, and, and uh, anyway, uh, the, the gun violence in this country is just appalling. There are more guns than there are people. Also, they're already dead. Well, the people who are the victims of the mass shootings, right. they're not on our well-being list. No, but we do have a memorial list. But the but the the well-being list is for people threatened by all of this too. Right, and we can pray for them, but we don't know. There are no studies that have demonstrated that prayers for people who have died benefit them. Right. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Um, and um, I, 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 that would be great if we did have a kind of. Uh, experimental base so we could study that and how people who have died are benefited. At any rate, at any rate, that's, so that's part of Buddhist uh, tradition. But um, yes, to, to say, oh, uh, well, we're not going to change the laws about having uh, assault rifles available. And there are, uh, I think it's Florida and Texas now where you can carry assault rifles without a permit openly, uh, or, they're, or they're, that's the direction they're going. Uh, and thoughts and prayers don't help when, when so many uh, vicious weapons of war are available to teenagers. It's just, it's uh, insanity. So yes, thoughts and prayers can help, but there, there's a limit to, there, there's also actually helping. So in, in a physical sense. So uh, I appreciate you bringing this up, Jen. So maybe it's time to stop for now. Uh, we're going to continue studying Mahakirti Sutra. Douglas will be here. Uh, this is in the realm of announcements, but um, Douglas will be here tomorrow evening talking about uh, sickness and how Mahakirti is using illness as a teaching. And next Sunday, uh, Dale Wright, who's a fine scholar who's written a, a very good book about the Malakirti Sutra, will be here uh, talking about the goddess, the uh, goddess of freedom in, in the Malakirti chapter. There's uh, a lot to say about that. So uh, let's close with the four-word sacrifice.